Welcome to Linked Up, Breaking Boundaries in Education, a podcast that focuses on what is happening in education today, connecting everyone to the movers and shakers that are breaking boundaries in the education arena. Hello and welcome to Linked Up, Breaking Boundaries in Education. This is Jamie Sapanero and Jerry Kemmel and I have a wonderful guest from COSIN. COSIN is the Consortium for School Networking and it has always been a proponent for many years for schools working together by promoting partnerships and bringing awareness to emerging technologies in the K-12 arena. So today more than ever, we are depending on technology to educate our students and we are depending on collaboration through this technology. Yes. So I was involved with COSIN as an assistant superintendent, and um, we know that COSIN is doing so many things, but behind the scenes, the man that I think is making the magic happen is with us today, and that's Keith Kruger. And Keith, I was looking over all of the awards that you've been given. You have been so recognized for what you have been doing, and rightly so. But I, I want to just let our listeners hear some of the things that you have been recognized for because they are so important. Um, Keith was selected as the EdTech Influencer, IT Influencer in 2019. He was also one of the Big Ten most influential people in EdTech for the Center of Digital Education. And he was also identified as the top one of the top 30 technologists, transformers, and trailblazers. And as I read through all of this, I thought, you are triple T, mm. technologist, <laughs> transformer, and trailblazer, all rolled up into one, Keith. And you do all of those things. You meet with the people that are making the decisions and the and the influencers and the policymakers, you and the practitioners, you are one of those people that meets with everyone, and you kind of pull it all together and get us all rowing in the same direction, if you will. So, welcome, Keith Kruger. It I am honored to have you on the podcast today. Thanks, Jerry, and my mother thanks you also for those kind. Of- what did Woody Woody Allen say the 90% of success is showing up and so uh, fortunately I've had the pleasure of working with (laughs) for a long time and we've been showing up you have been showing up but you you do more than show up (laughs) you make things happen and for some of our listeners, not everyone knows what COSIN is, what COSIN does. Jamie alluded to connecting districts, but can you tell us what are some of the things that COSIN does? And the second part of that is how have you shifted or have you had to during this pandemic? Well, uh, COSIN is a nearly 30-year-old national nonprofit. We represent uh, ed tech leaders. Uh, school districts join as a member, as well as we have uh, over 100 corporations, including uh, ClassLink. And we really try uh, to provide, uh, you know, what are the skills needed to lead with technology in this moment? And uh, yes, we've <laughs> we, like every one of our members, uh, I guess the, the upside is that this is kind of our moment. Uh, we've been talking for almost 30 years about the way that technology can be 
used, not that it will be used, but can be used when done right uh, with, with you know, leaders that understand what's possible. But overnight, you know, last spring, uh, you know, everything changed for everybody, <laughs> certainly for students, for teachers, for parents, but also for national associations like COSIN. Frankly, a lot of our uh, things we did were face-to-face, -face, uh, annual conference, regional events, um, gatherings of uh, district leaders, all that had to be rethought and reimagined. And uh, in fact, uh, next week will be our second <laughs> uh, virtual annual conference and it'll be bigger and better than ever before. But we've really had to think about what is it that we can do in unique ways uh, with um, district leaders. And uh, we got we've, you know, all kinds of exciting things that we've been doing. Just yesterday, over a hundred leaders uh, went on a, what we called our virtual fly-in. We used to, for 20 years now, we've been having a fly-in where people came to Washington DC to meet with their members of Congress and their staff and go to the agencies we couldn't do that, couldn't do that last spring. We couldn't do that today today or yesterday, but we did it virtually. Uh, we did it with this kind of a Zoom introduction and we had hundreds of meetings with key staffers and members of Congress making the case that in this moment of remote learning, we need to make some new investments and uh, that that's critical. And uh, we've certainly been working a lot on guidance too. Uh, and partners like ClassLink, you know, we have a terrific back to school rubric that kind of indicates all the sort of things that school district leaders need to be thinking about. And the part I like the best is that it shows exemplars, you know, for each indicator of being ready to be back to school, you know, regardless of whether you're a hundred percent face-to-face or a hundred percent virtual or remote, uh, or something in between, what are the exemplars of how you do that? Keith, we have talked about that rubric with several leaders across the nation. People are really singing the praises of the work that went into that rubric because I believe that our our leaders are so in the weeds with everything that's happening day to day. They love having this rubric where this brain trust of great people and great thinkers have come together and created this rubric of what it is you need. And so they can pick that up literally and look through there. And I am with you. The exemplars are the thing that I like the most because I like to see great examples. Not that you can totally copy that example, but it really propels you to think of how it can be used in your district. So I, uh, exactly. I and, and you know, uh, you, you know, Jerry, that COSIN's vendor neutral. We don't endorse products or services, but strategic partners like ClassLink, I think, have subject matter expertise. They and they're, you know, like COSIN working with all kinds of districts and you start to see where things are happening and where they're not. And so the more that we can highlight and really have these kind of partnerships, it really makes a difference. And and, you know, um, I think it's this moment has also COSIN uh, for you know over a decade has thought about IT crisis preparedness. You know, if you think back to when Katrina happened, we put out a lot of free resources for school districts thinking about um, 
you know, what happens with natural disasters, hurricanes, fires, floods, things like that. Well, the pandemic is something we never talked about. So we've updated all those resources and really rebranded them as learning continuity. And that's, to me, is really what this is all about. Because, you know, the pandemic, hopefully in the coming months, will will, uh, fade, we'll have vaccines, things will quote, go back to normal. But we ought to be prepared that, you know, whether you have snow or whether there's some other flu outbreak or kids are working or sick and need to be at home, we ought to be able to have learning continue. Right. Many districts are gearing up to have that available in the future. And I love the the term continuous learning no matter what that looks like. Yeah, with all the initiatives and many that you've already mentioned, uh, you have one special one, the Global Advisory Board that we wanted to focus on today. Um, Through that, you have identified hurdles and accelerators for uh, innovation in that would be driven within K-12 education. So those hurdles that were identified, let's start with those first. digital equity, scaling and sustaining innovation, as well as evolution of teaching and learning. So can you help us unpack those and let us know how those are hurdles? This is part of our driving K-12 innovation, uh, which Jerry is actually on our board of over 100 advisors, uh, and it is global. It's a global research project that started 13 years ago. It started off actually by another nonprofit, a higher ed association, and it used to be called the Horizon K-12 Report. And three years ago, we took it over and rebranded it as Driving K-12 Innovation. And just, to, you know, I love that you're starting with the hurdles. I like to think of that as the why. Uh, and, and uh, you know, often when you ask uh, people in charge of technology or innovative educators to, to think about emerging technologies for learning, they start with the technology. And so I think it's so important to your question to that we always start with what are the hurdles? What is the what are the things we're trying to overcome and solve with the technology? And this year, you're absolutely right that um, and this is an iterative process where judges, uh, advisors like Jerry, uh, it's kind of like Survivor Island, <laughs> where we discuss a whole bunch of topics. They start with like 30 different possible hurdles, and then they it's like Survivor Island. They vote things off. And they discuss them until they pick the three most important for this year. And digital equity was at top of this year's list. Um, And I think that is no question because of the pandemic. We saw immediately that, well, at least in the United States, we were making a lot of progress at school with broadband and devices. In fact, you know, two thirds of classrooms were one to one at the middle and high school level. But overnight on, you know, around March 13th, we learned that millions, perhaps up to 15 million students uh, do not have connectivity at home or a device at home for learning. And so it's a huge, huge problem and, uh, you know, absolutely rose to the top of the list of the advisors. Oh, can I mention one thing as far as digital equity too that I want to put in there? I think people sometimes gloss over the digital equity piece and they think, oh, you have access to the internet via your mom's phone for learning. And 
that just isn't adequate um, for students. They need the right tools too. And, and that is part of that digital equity, making sure they have the right tools that they need to perform the tasks that they need to perform. You're absolutely right, Jerrica. And the, the, the lower income that you are, the more likely the way that you access the internet is with a mobile phone. That's not to say you can't do some things with, but boy, can you imagine trying to apply for college, sitting at a McDonald's Wi-Fi, doing it on your, your or your mom's uh, cell phone? It, you're at a competitive disadvantage. Because we're talking about two different things here with digital equity, is that right? Uh, the access, right, in terms of, with device, but then also connectivity as well. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the devices are a problem, uh, but a bigger problem is home connectivity. Uh, there are, you know, it's easy to get easier increasingly with the declining cost of devices to get a device that works. Uh, it's harder to pay that ongoing recurring cost for home access. And of course, the lower the income you are. And it, it's not just a matter of income. It's also a matter of where you live in rural and remote communities. You can give all the hotspots away to every student, but if you live in a lot of parts of rural America, they're not gonna work. So Keith, I know you've heard this story, but it bears repeating because it really hit me hard. I had a student that was accessing her homework via her mom's phone. And she told me just outright that she would rather fail a class than tell her teacher that they could not afford to have the internet in their home. And also when mom's cell phone, when she ran out of minutes, she was done with homework. And she said, I can't buy more homework or more time to do my homework. So I would rather just fail. So um, in our district, we did provide her a device and a hotspot. She came back to me that next spring, sought me out, which I was so pleased to tell me she's on the honor roll. Think oh, of wow. how we're missing students and failing them just because of that. It had nothing to do with her knowledge or her ability, but everything to do with digital equity. Well, and you're absolutely right about the challenges just because, uh, you know, you're accessing, you're able to access on the, a mobile device or, or even a hotspot, they're often data capped. And therefore, especially with virtual, like what we're doing right now with uh, video conferencing, if you're, that you could easily exhaust those caps within, you know, a few days of the month, the first few days of the month. And, uh, and that's not the only problem. We, we have a new initiative funded by the, it's a research project uh, with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. We're looking at uh, 13 very large school districts and looking at the experience for the student. And what we're finding out is that it, there are surprising things like some of the devices, some of the Chromebooks that kids have aren't designed to do video conferencing. We're also finding that Wi-Fi, you know, I, I know in my house, I know that there are certain parts of the house where I don't get a good signal and didn't until I got a booster. And uh, if you have more, you know, mom and dad or, and, the, and a couple of kids are working in different parts of the house, 
that's not ever going to work. These are new problems that are that affect the learning opportunity for students. And so we, there's been a lot of media uh, coverage about kids that aren't logging on, but do we know why? Is it that they don't have access? Is it that they're taking they're depressed? Is it that they're taking care of their sibling? Is it that the Wi-Fi is so terrible or they have a device that doesn't work? We've got to get better information. Yeah, digital equity goes so deep. There are so many layers to it and components to it that really need to be looked at in order to properly address it. For sure. Yeah. And it's more than just, I mean, so far we've talked about it, having a device and having broadband, but being able to use it. And we do find that the use of technology, particularly in lower income school systems, often is more used for more for rote learning in less powerful ways. Parents and guardians of lower income kids are less familiar with it. So they, they can't be as support, they aren't as supportive about how to use it. Um, so there's a whole lot of digital literacy that really is the next level around equity. Sure, sure. So how about scaling and sustainability of innovation? Yeah, and that has been on for the last several years. And I, I, I think the easiest way to describe that is you could ask almost every teacher or principal or, or people, Barry, who were superintendent, at the superintendent level, tell me the name of a of a teacher or a classroom, or maybe even a school that's doing powerful things with technology, everybody today can do that. Mm -hmm. Then if you say, is that the case everywhere? Is that the case? It doesn't matter which classroom you're in or which school. So we're really good at islands of innovation, but we're not connecting those islands. So that really makes sense that we need to look at not just what it is, but how broad it could be. Well, and what things, of course, you know, not everything will work in every single classroom with every single teacher, but what are the kinds of things that do work and how do we get more teachers and the and students that, uh, that that works for using them so that it really doesn't matter your zip code or which class you're in or which teacher you got. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And then the third hurdle, um, evolution of teaching and learning. How is that a hurdle? Yeah, and I think certainly there are teachers uh, and even new teachers who just, uh, they, they certainly know how to use the technology for their own personal use, but do they really know how to use it for pedagogy? And this problem isn't a new problem. It probably isn't a problem that will go away overnight, but I think we're it is a huge challenge. That said, I will say that the pandemic has changed the landscape. Uh, Ed Week uh, does a, did a survey last June and they asked teachers to self-assess their skills. And they said, in the last three months, since March, has your ability to use technology significantly increased, somewhat increased, stayed the same. said significantly changed. Another 41% said somewhat changed. We, you know, I've been at this a long time. I've earned my white hair. Uh, We've never in three months seen the needle move that quickly. And I think that is the opportunity to leverage, I think a whole lot more teachers as well as students and parents see what could be happening when it's done right. 
when it's I done right. I still think we have a long way to go. Yeah. I, I think that's the differentiator, right? Because it's one thing to know how to use the tool, but it's quite another to know how to meaningfully integrate it. Um, I always say, you know, the curriculum instruction plays the lead while the technology plays the supporting role. So you can get the understanding of what that tool does, but now let's think about how we can actually make it meaningful. So we don't want to use Google Forms just to duplicate a multiple choice test that may not have been so great to begin with. Instead, let's think of how we can embed critical thinking instead. So that way it's higher level thinking. Yeah. And, and you know, these self-assessments by teachers are interesting because sometimes the more, as you start to learn more, the more harsher you self-assess that you're doing worse. <laughs> so we have kind of a counterintuitive that uh, some of our most sophisticated teachers realize that they have still a long way to go on the journey. And maybe we, maybe we all are that way. <laughs> the more we get exposed to it, the more we realize the, the, the journey we have to do. Yes. It does get longer sometimes for sure. Yeah. All right, so what about the accelerators? Yeah, so that's the second part, the second bucket. And accelerators looks at, um, I like to think of this as how do we swim with the tide versus against the tide? So what in the larger world or in the world of education is changing that we can use technology to, uh, to help you know, move things along? And so the accelerators that are experts, like Jerry told us this year, uh, were personalization, social and emotional learning and learner autonomy. And I wanna jump first to that second one, social emotional learning, because as I said, we've been doing this, these reports annually for 13 years, social emotional learning was never on the list of accelerators until last year. And I think that speaks to the moment. Yeah. And I, I think it, if anything, it, it rose to the occasion, just like digital equity, that this, we're realizing, it, especially in the pandemic, the, the emotional um, stress that students, as well as teachers and parents are under. And um, it's, to be very honest, and, and you know, COSIN, we've been at this for, you know, almost 30 years. We've never really talked about social emotional learning and technology before, but we are now. So next week at our annual conference, we have a social emotional keynote. Uh, Mina uh, Shiravasini uh, is going to be talking about, um, about how do you self-care for you and your technology team. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're also partnering with CASEL. They're the social emotional learning nonprofit experts. We reached out to them and said, you know, have you created resources for technology leaders and they said, well, not really. So we partnered and we're going to be putting out a member brief next week on how, do, how does technology either enhance or reduce social emotional learning in this moment? Or both. Of <laughs> or <Yeah>. both, right? <laughs> yes, it has done both. That's what I love about COSIN. You find the problem and then you reach out to get the people connected to try to work on that problem. That's so COSIN in what you just said. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, yeah. and we were very volunteer driven. And, uh, you know, if you, if you have a great idea uh, or want to work on a problem, we're, we're very, um, we're, we're, we're small staff, uh, very small staff uh, for a national organization. We only have 13 people. And frankly, the subject matter experts are our members and we tap into them to participate in, and, and the companies like ClassLink, you know, to let's not talk about the end product and the sales and solution, but let's talk about, you know, the first 80% of the problem that you have to do regardless of what solution you pick. Right. Right. Well, what about personalization? How has that been an accelerator? Yeah. And that's a, a, not a new trend. It's a global trend. We've seen it. You know, I think we, we all know from going on Amazon and buying something that immediately it predicts what else you might like to, to have. And we see that whether it's, you know, ordering food for restaurants and, uh, you know, or the, the, our expectations around personalization in the world have changed. And I think that has big implications of what students want, and probably what parents want for their students is not just a cookie cutter uh, education, but something that relates to their passions, that allows them to go deeper. You know, I, I, one of the skeptics of technology um, was a columnist in the New York Times, and she often about before the pandemic about having too much screen time. Well, she wrote a column uh, this spring, which said, okay, the debate is over, screens won. She said, but what I'm also realizing is that things are changed. And my, her student, her, her child would get up in the morning and be online at you know, 6.30, 7 in the morning and be done with their schoolwork by nine in the morning. That now, I guess that, you know, that her child was very motivated and, and not every child is, but, she also thought about, you know, what, how could we use, clearly her, when her student goes to school, they're filling up whatever, six and a half, seven hours a day. Is there some way that we could use more of the time to go deeper, to more personalize the learning experience? Because that's a real opportunity if we allow students to go at their own pace. And, and the third trend is uh, learner autonomy. And I think that's the flip side of personalization, which is, you know, just, you know, helping learners, um, you know, move at their own pace and, and really, um, yeah. <laughs> well, we've been trying to do that with the flipped model classroom, right? That's what it's all about. Mastery learning, yeah. learning at your own pace, uh, personalized learning, um, but, it is not easy to do, but when we became forced into, you know, the pandemic, well, now teachers realize, well, that's sort of a solution here to this situation. So I think more teachers became open to it uh, and realizing that we can change a little bit. We don't have to do things the same way we've always done. Well, and I think right now we're at a critical moment where um, there's such a desire to get back to school, to go back to normal. And what I would hope that every um, teacher and administrator are really thinking about normal didn't work for a lot for a lot of kids. <laughs> so how do we build back better than normal? 
And what is it that we can learn from the things that we've learned the last few months? There are some things that are silver linings that are better. So parent engagement is better. And let me give you an example. So, um, you know, in middle and high school in a lot of districts, it's really hard to get parents to show up at night for parent night. So, uh, you know, if they got 10 or 15 student uh, parents, that was great. Doing it virtually, um, you know, Santa Fe Public Schools told us they have over 200 parents showing up for parent night. That's better than what we had before. So maybe there are new and better ways to engage parents um, than what the way we've been doing it traditionally. There are certainly better ways to do professional development. Uh, we know that in many large schools, the, the principals were expected to come down to the central office. That was, you know, an hour each way in traffic, maybe longer in school districts like Los Angeles. If they can do that virtually, and maybe you can do, you know, all staff convenings only happened maybe the week before school ever started, and that was the end of it. Well, maybe there's new opportunities. We're hearing from innovative superintendents that they're doing, um, you know, co coffee and the superintendent virtual uh, check-ins and let uh, the parents and community show up and ask questions about of things. So there are better opportunities. Right, and I think districts are having that conversation about what will we keep? And I'm hearing that the parent-teacher conference is one thing that they really do want to keep and to keep going. I, I wanted to bring up one point on learner autonomy. Um, when we give students devices and access and they finish their work, I hear some school leaders really concerned about using the tool other than for school or another family member using the tool. And that concerns me on several levels. First of all, I lived in a very rural community for several years. My son wanted to learn to play the guitar. It was an hour drive each way and they were having him play hot cross buns, not interested. <laughs> so one day I come home from school and he is jamming on this guitar and I'm thinking, what in the world? And there on his lap sits his phone and YouTube and some seven or 10 year old is teaching him the guitar. And what I loved about that, what really changed my viewpoint on that was learner autonomy. He is taking his learning in his own hands. Was it something assigned at school? No. Is it something he loves? Yes. And is he learning how to learn? Yes. Love that. I think when we focus so much on this is the school tool, I think we're going to really limit our students. I also had a student tell me that once she had a device in her home, her mother was, a, a, she didn't speak English. And so she got on the device and used Google Translate and found a job. I mean, these things change lives. And for us to limit that, it, it scares me. I think you're right, Jerry, and, and I think it. one of my passions has been thinking about how do we break out of the silo. You know, educators think in the silo of education and that this is money that we can only use for the, the, we took a delegation a few years ago, in fact, it's been almost a decade, and down to Uruguay. Uruguay is a relatively poor country in South America, but at the presidential level, they decided that the way they would address 
uh, social equity was through providing a device for every student in every home. And, and they put Wi-Fi connectivity within six blocks of every house in Uruguay. Well, we saw that at night, after the kids had gone to bed, those same devices were used by the mothers. They offered uh, nutrition programs. Um, and, you know, you, you think about the same families that are unconnected for remote learning are the same families that have extra health problems. They, they need to do diabetes management. Uh, you know, there's the same families that are unemployed uh, that need to be connected so that they can find a job. So we could, as a country, if we invested in broadband connectivity and got the, you know, everyone connected, it has huge societal impacts, just like the highways that we put in in the 1950s. We didn't say, well, it can only be used for commerce or it can only be used to get to school. The, the highway could get you everywhere. I love that analogy. That is great. That is great. Keith, as as you think of all of these things that are moving and moving K-12 forward and some of the hurdles that we need to get over, I had a, a mentor one time and uh, Jamie has heard me ask this question before. I'm going to start calling it the Wyckoff question because that was his last name. He would always ask me after we talked, what has become clear? So through all of this research and in the pandemic, what's become clear to you, Keith? One of the things we've we've heard repeatedly uh, is that, uh, and cl clearly we've already talked about digital equity, but one of the other things we've learned is that there are almost too many tools and it's too complicated. Uh, if you don't have kind of a simple way to get on a, a platform that has all the tools and that you know you don't need all of the, all of the different sign-ons and the complexity needs to be, made simpler and just having the wild wild west of every free tool that every teacher can find doesn't help move the needle so that's a big problem another big problem and i know that that's a big passion for you jerry and and for classlink uh, another one that i think is is um th there's been this assumption that providing the network um through you know, federal monies and E-rate uh, is, is sufficient. But what we're finding is that it has to be safe connection. And cybersecurity is a real rising problem uh, that I think has been almost uh, ignored in K-12. And yet, uh, you know, just in December, uh, the um, FBI, the Homeland Security and MSISAC, which is the Internet Safety Commission, put out a joint warning that K-12 is the number one targeted public sector for ransomware. And that has become ever more uh, realized in this moment of the pandemic. It's probably not something that you want the, that the average teacher or parent is thinking about, but boy, our technology leaders really need to um, help all of students and, and teachers that you can't click on everything. You have to have be sophisticated or else you're gonna, um, you're gonna lose your identity. You're gonna lose your data. Student information is gonna become accessible and um, we're all gonna be held hostage. You know, it's interesting because um, almost this time last year at AASA, 
um, COSIN was able to bring to the forefront many um, presentations from different uh, school leaders that helped to shed the light on this and really bring awareness to this. Um, and I think we were really starting to, that was a priority, right? That was up here. But then of course, two months later, we, or a month later, right? A month later, the pandemic hits. And so now that security is down here on the list, but I'm thinking, I'm hoping now that it's starting to rise back up because we're even more vulnerable because people really are online are. more so. So yeah, and, and we have filed uh, along with the state directors of technology and a number of other organizations uh, with the Federal Communications Commission because E-Rate is the largest funder of technology, but it hasn't been allowable to, to cover you know, modern kind of cybersecurity. So we're working on that and we'll see, we're hopeful that the new administration and the new FCC will take this account. Well, Keith Kruger, we appreciate you and all of the things that you're doing to advocate for all kids. Every time I have a conversation with you, I walk away a little more informed and a little more committed. And I hope that um, our listeners feel the same way. And I thank you for your work. And thank you for always keeping us informed as to what's happening. I learned some new things today that I didn't know. And, and I always appreciate that about you. Well, and I, I want to thank, uh, you know, Classlink for, for you and Classlink. Uh, Classlink is a, a terrific uh, diamond level partner, our highest level partner, and they really, uh, you know, work together with us to provide great resources. It, you know, and I would, uh, they support our superintendents uh, digital superintendent award and our empowered superintendent initiative. And monthly we do a webinar on EdWeb. Uh, with superintendents talking about these sort of issues. So thank you and, uh, and we appreciate the whole team there. You bet. I think if we've learned one thing through this pandemic is that schools can't do this alone. No. It's the partners in the community and we all have to come together to educate our students and make it relevant. So thank you so much. So great. And, you know, you are a leader in this, leading us through this, and we really appreciate this. But how can other schools get involved um, and where can they find you to do so? Yeah, uh, just go to cosin.org, C-O-S-N.org. I, I hope that, uh, you know, if you haven't yet signed up, you have another few days. Uh, next Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, March 2nd to 4th, we'll have our COSIN conference. Uh, all the details are at cosinconference.org. And this year, for the first time ever, uh, you know, we always gave a discount if like a second or third person from a district came, but we've completely changed that with team registrations. And it's based on the size of your uh, student population. So, you know, maybe two or three people could come from your district in the past because of travel constraints. Now your whole team can come. So we're having the biggest conference ever next week. And we're going to be, it's called Bold and Brave, because that's what we think leaders need to focus on. And we're going to start with Ken Shelton, who's going to think about this moment of racial reconciliation. What's the role of technology leaders in, in moving that along? We're going to hear from Weston Keneshik talking about kind of blended learning and being bold. He has a new book on that. And ending, as I said, on uh, kind of self-care with Mina, uh, who's going to be uh, you know, talking about how do you take care of yourself 
and how do you take care of your technology team? Because you're no good to those students and teachers if you're not taking care of yourself. That's exactly right. We had Ken Shelton on our show. So if people want to get a glimpse of who Ken is, you can never hear enough of him. They can check out his podcast. It was terrific. So I'm looking forward to next week. See you all there. You bet. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to stay linked up, be sure to follow us on Apple and Spotify and subscribe to us on YouTube.